Welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of Conservation Science at Montana State University in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. We are here in Studio 300 Lewis, and I'm Chris Guy, your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. Today I'm here with Jessica Eggers, and she is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Um, so kind of nice weather out there today. Um, looks like spring's trying to get here. So A little bit, yeah. yeah a little bit. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and, uh, and uh, some things like that. Yeah, so I was born and raised on the Kerr Reservation in Montana. Um, my parents moved there from Hawaii where my three brothers were born. My dad is Crow, so we moved back to um, what I would call our ancestral lands and raised horses. So I grew up doing a lot of that work with raising the horses and um, hauling water. Um, that My house that I grew up in didn't have running potable water, so we had to haul all of our water from um, a pump on our horse's land and use it in five-gallon containers for cooking and cleaning and even like showering and that kind of stuff. So um, I grew up kind of with a firsthand experience of drinking water problems, and it really shaped um, how I thought about conservation and nature and human access to that kind of stuff moving forward. When I was 10, my family moved to Bozeman. Um, my mom was getting her PhD, and um, they thought I should have a better education. So I moved here and went through Anderson School till eighth grade and then high school at Bozeman High. And then I was lucky enough to get into Stanford and did my undergrad there. Um, and as much as I like the Bay Area, I was really ready to come back to Montana um, and do my grad work here. That's that's a, an amazing uh, a story for somebody um, as as young as you, if I will, to have the, all those experiences. That's amazing, and and just uh, really getting to understand. I, I I resonated with me the 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 water and the potable water and being able to to uh, experience that, but then move to some place like Bozeman where it's easily accessible, and that had to be quite a change and just kind of wrapping your head around that. Totally, yeah. yeah. My moving here the first couple years was really, really different. Um, moving from somewhere that was primarily native and all my classmates were probably 50-50 native and white. And then to Anderson School where um, everyone was at least white appearing mm -hmm. um, and we're all middle or upper middle class was really mm -hmm. different. Um, when I moved here, I was really excited to get a doorbell on my house <laughs> because I had, it was kind of a luxury. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just things like a running, you know, dishwasher yeah. um, were luxuries for my mom, you know, yeah. and us doing that. But definitely was a huge kind of social challenge really early in life is seeing um, my classmates who had no reason to see kind of crow and the kind of struggle that a lot of people are there and me having seen that and not feeling like I related to them. Mm -hmm. Um, and then trying of challenging my own self identity as being part native since my dad is crow 
but white appearing mm-hmm. and kind of what that meant um, to me and how I wanted to express that in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, um, it sounds like where you grew up had some um, bearing, if you will, on what compelled you to pursue a career in conservation. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? What made you go down this track to where you're at today in the Berkle lab and doing the work that you're doing? And we'll get into the research here in a little bit, but what really inspired you to, to, to go into this field? Yeah, I think from a young age, um, growing up in somewhere that was really rural and having horses and raising them and being really connected to my land, both through the tribe and spiritually, um, as well as doing things like going um, to sun dances that my dad attended. Um, and those would be up in like the Wolf Mountains and going and walking around with my mom and collecting horsemen and her telling me about the traditional uses of those plants and just being really immersed in it became part of my life that I didn't see as like a career or a future, but just who I was and what I valued. And as I started going through school, um, one thing I remember is in my AP bio class in high school, I read in our book about bacteria that were being used to clean up oil spills. And I thought that was the coolest thing. (laughs) And I was like, this is something I'd want to do is definitely a big restoration focus. Mm And, you know, Crow is surrounded by a lot of places that have heavy mining um, for coal, like coal strip and seeing the health effects of that on tribal members and thinking about how do I, how can I make a difference in going in and cleaning up those um, damaged ecosystems. I also in high school did Montana Conservation Corps, which um, took us to four different kind of places around the state to do different restoration projects And one was up in Fort Peck and we were driving on BLM land and we all had to get out of our rig to drive it up this little mesa because (laughs) it wasn't going to make it up otherwise. And I climbed up this hill and I turned around and I looked out and I couldn't see a single human like infrastructure item, like no fences, no roads, no buildings. And it was just this moment that I was in awe of nature. And I was like, this is what I want to see. And this is why I love coming from Montana. And like, how do we protect these places? Cause the thought of it being covered with parking lots and strip malls was just not something I wanted. Right. Um, and so I kind of realized then that I wanted it as more than a part of my identity, but as like a career and something I want to focus on and, um, have be a part of my life's work. Yeah. That's, that's fabulous. I have some research up in that area working on pallid sturgeon. And that's one of the things I love about that area, the uh, upper end of Fort Peck. It's, I think it's in many regards more remote than Yellowstone. You know, we do a lot of work in Yellowstone too, but you always see a little bit of infrastructure here and there, or certainly a person or something like that, but you can really get lost up in the Fort Peck area. It's just an amazing part of our country and certainly Montana. I just love it. And it is, there's something about it when you look across the landscape and it's, I don't know what it is, man. It just makes you emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people who 
aren't from Eastern Montana think it's really bland and don't like that just plains view. Um, But I guess growing up there, I just love it because I don't know, it makes you pay attention to detail. There's not an emetic draw of mountain. Right. Um, You have to really pay attention to like the sagebrush and I don't know, the vista. It's awesome. And part of it might be that I grew up in the Great Plains, so maybe that's, I'm just kind of attracted <laughs> to that too. I get a little claustrophobic in the forest. Right? Yeah. 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 So that's, that's, that's a, a wonderful uh, story and a, an amazing, um, you know, capturing the, the oil spill and just your experiences up at Fort Peck. Are there any individuals that are really, that you can think of that um, really kind of also fostered this conservation kind of, you, you mentioned a little bit about your mom and dad, but yeah. that is, you know, maybe you could speak more to them or is there somebody else mm-hmm. that really kind of um, sparked this love of conservation? Totally. Yeah. I mean, as I said before, my family is really important to me and definitely have been huge in my education and my love for the environment um, outside of them in Um, When I was at Stanford my sophomore year, I did a quarter-long field course in Hawaii, which was led by Peter Vitusik. And he, in my mind, is just a world-renowned biologist. And hearing him talk about the land and his research and seeing that it was so close to who he is and how much he had personal connections with the people he was working in and the Pacific and on Hawaii and how he was putting that forward into the future with this field course and helping students um, in my major and outside of it, learn about the land in Hawaii and also learning kind of his research mindset was really big to me and seeing different styles of how to be in research and, um, how it can look different for different people. Yeah. And what do you, what do you kind of mean by different styles? Um, I think that at least for him, he has a really large human component to his research. So Mm -hmm. he works a lot on ecology, but he's also really close to all of like the native tribes and Pacific Island people that he works with. And I think a lot of research has been done historically that, occurs on these lands, but hasn't involved what those people want with it. Um, especially on tribal lands in the U S and making sure that research is being done by the people and for those people and not being done, um, because an outside researcher is interested Mm -hmm. and does what they think is right. Um, so yeah, Peter is huge in showing me, what research looks like to him and what's important and how he's done that in his life. And also how it's important to factor people in when you're doing ecology. Yeah, that's great. So getting to this point of sitting in this chair during this podcast, um, doesn't always come easy for everybody. And, and I would argue that most people have some kind of hurdles that they had to jump over, get through, however you want to say it to, to get to this position. I've certainly had quite a few in my career and um, just curious if there's any hurdles that you want to share with the listeners to kind of, you know, give them confidence, if you will, that 
they too can get to this point in, in their career development, if you will, of, of being uh, somebody interested in conservation. Totally. Um, I think first and foremost, coming from a place where education is not great and seeing, can I make it to somewhere like Stanford would not have been on my mind there. Um, and it took, you know, my parents who are both college educated, um, moving off of the reservation and getting me a better education and teaching me, you know, how to work hard for what I want and, you know, doing that extra homework and, um, applying for Stanford, which was (laughs) outside of my vision for my life. Um, yeah, I, over the summer after I moved from Crow to Bozeman, I had to do an entire year of math, um, at home, um, (laughs) because I was that far behind and that was just how the curriculum was and getting better funding for those schools and those teachers would be huge. So more native students can make it into academia. And I know a lot is being done right now at MSU to help with that. Um, so it's definitely being done, which is awesome. Um, and also helping tribal college students transfer to MSU and just next week, um, there are visiting native scholars who are interested in grad school who are being hosted. So I think it's getting better and that makes me excited. Yep. It's getting better, but we have a long ways to go. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think to hear your story is just quite inspirational to see where you've, um, been and where you've, where you've come to. And I, I can just hear it in your spirit that you got a long, uh, healthy career ahead of you in in conservation. That's very exciting. I'm here with Jessica Eggers, and she is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. And this is the part of the podcast where we switch gears and we talk about your research project that you're doing here at Montana State University. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my research kind of involves two major components, which is a below ground symbiosis with fungi. Uh oh. Um, whoa. Whoa. Below ground symbiosis. Below ground symbiosis. <laughs> yeah, help us out here. So um, there are a kind of fungi. Um, that- so when you say fungi, just, you know, we're talking about like mushroom kind of stuff? We So we're talking about. Um, yes, mushroom stuff, but (laughs) below ground, um, the network that, um, mushrooms are included in is called hyphae. Um, so these are kind of like a branching structure that are like plant roots, but they're fungi. That's right. Cause the stuff we see above ground, like when Mm -hmm. I go chanterelle picking or morel picking, that's the reproductive part. And then there's all these fibers under the mm-hmm. ground. That's I, I'm vaguely remembering yeah. my uh, <laughs> my my uh, biology class. <laughs> right. Okay. So the hyphae, so the underground network, um, they in the symbiosis they um, connect with plant roots. So there are types that there are types of fungi that live inside of the plant root cell, and they exchange. Um, nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus and water in exchange for the plant providing sugar. Um, So that's kind of the mutualistic or like positive, positive interaction between. Yeah. So they're helping each other out. Right. To put it in. uh, So fungi is getting sugars that help it maintain its structure and Mm -hmm. grow. 
um, in exchange for breaking down um, needed nutrients that the plant can't obtain by itself. Okay. Yeah. So um, the below ground symbiosis with the fungi and an above ground symbiosis with pollinators. So things like bees and wasps and flies and butterflies, mm -hmm. um, which I'm specifically studying native perennial forbs. So native plant flowering plants that um, reproduce every year um, and just keep growing. So they're not annuals um, like ornamentals you might buy in the store. Right. Um, so I'm studying how those mycorrhizal, which is just a symbiotic fungi, um, mediate plant traits like biomass, so like size, number of flowers, seed set, um, volatiles, which are just like the chemical kind of scents that plants put off to attract pollinators like bees. Um, so I'm seeing how AMF um, which is a specific kind of mycorrhizal <laughs> so fungi. What do, mean, what, what do you mean by AMF? <laughs> so AMF stands for arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. if you break it down, um, arbuscular, um, arbuscule means little tree in Latin. And that's the shape of the structure that the fungi produces um, in the plant root cell. So it forms like a little tree structure within the plant cell and that's the um, site of exchange of the fungi providing nitrogen, phosphorus, and the plant providing sugars. So this is just a specific kind of fungi. Um, so I'm studying how AMF, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, mediate the effects of climate change. So hmm. I have a climate change factor, mm -hmm. mediate the effects of climate change for native perennial forbs. So I'm using... Um, temperatures from the Montana climate assessment. Mm -hmm. So I have baseline summer temperatures, which is 25 C. I have 25 degrees Celsius. Um, I have projected temperatures for 2050, um, which is 28.1 degrees Celsius. And I have projected temperatures for 2100, which is 30.4. And those are all business as usual temperatures. Right. So if we continue um, with emissions and the path we are on right now, those are the average annual summer temperatures that we will see here in Montana. Um, so because um, the AMF, the mycorrhizal fungi are important in nutrient exchange and help plants with water uptake, there is research showing that they can buffer the effects of increased temperature huh. and um, global warming, climate change, et cetera. So I'm looking at how um, under those different climate sim simulations, which are being done in the plant growth center at MSU in um, growth chambers, mm -hmm. which are basically big refrigerators that you control <laughs> the light and the right. CO2 and the temperature. Um, so I'm growing yarrow. Um, and flax, which mm -hmm. are really widespread throughout kind of all of North America, at least more of Western North America, mm -hmm. and growing them with different species of the mycorrhizal fungi under these different temperature treatments. So it's kind of a big factorial process. Yeah, that's um, a, there's a lot going on there. But yeah. if I could just boil it down, you're mm -hmm. looking at those different temperatures mm -hmm. and then looking at how that affects the, the, the fungi under the, under the soil. Mm -hmm. And then how does that translate to things that happen above ground? Right. Yeah. Right. So, 
Um, obviously, there is a control. So this is asking, do certain species of this mycorrhizal fungi um, change plant traits enough to help with their survival or pollination parameters, like number of flowers or flowering size or um, phenology of when plants flower in the spring, like the date, mm-hmm. um, enough to be different than a control without fungi. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of interesting. So you said they could mediate climate change a little bit, and I'm just trying to figure out what the exact mechanism for that is. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I might've missed that. You might've said that, but I missed it and how they would help with that. Right. So the most, um, I think the most obvious one is uh, mycorrhizal fungi kind of form an extended root system for plants. So when plants make this mycorrhizal, this symbiotic relationship, they have an extended root network. So they're able to access more water, which is really important for increased temperatures and also more nutrients. So if they become nutrient limited or stressed by different kinds of global change, then this symbiosis can help with that um, and can help plants, you know, access more water during really severe parts of droughts or that is the thinking of. And so you mentioned uh, pollinators as well, and they're, Mm -hmm. they're big in the news these days. And so Mm -hmm. are you testing any of that? I'm just trying to figure out how you do that in these growth chambers. Do you, interject like do you put a bee in there and see what the bee does or let it loose yeah let it loose or do you um, do you have a la- uh, component out in mm-hmm. the field that you're that you're working on yeah so there's a, a field component so i will be growing these plants in the growth chambers under the different temperatures and in the spring in the next couple months they'll start flowering um so we'll do all the plant trait measurements then and then take them out into the field. My advisor, Dr. Burkle, has a field site out south of town, kind of Mount Ellis way. Mm -hmm. And we'll take all what is 240 plants right now out and do pollination surveying on them. So seeing kind of how frequently they're visited, by what kind of species are they visited, what pollinators, species, um, and other stuff like that to see um, if, Again, the AMF, the mycorrhizal fungi, change the plant traits under these temperatures enough to also affect pollination, which would be um, also affecting reproduction of how right. these um, plants will look in the future. Mm-hmm. So, Man, that's, uh, that's very cool research, and it sounds so complicated, a lot of moving parts, but yeah. um, it's, it's exciting, and it's and certainly something we need with the changes that we're seeing in, in climates you know, all around, but it's, it's, you know, I've lived here for what, almost 20 years and you can certainly tell a difference here in Montana. So, um, what would be given all this that you just said, what would be the most exciting thing you could discover or the best thing you could discover? Yeah. I know it's kind of a bit of a vague question, but just thinking about at the end of the research, what, what would be just like magical? I think the magical component would be to have a big restoration impact with this work and places where there's a lot of like erosion or places that need to be reseeded with native perennial forbs if they were inoculated. So basically um, if fungal species um, 
were included in um, the seeding events mm-hmm. um, if that helped native plants establish. And in the age of a lot of concern about invasive species, mm-hmm. um, being able to give our native species an extra step ahead of that and have um, these fungal symbionts both prepare them for climate change in the future and also to outcompete um, invasive species would mm-hmm. be awesome. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I like yeah. the, I like how that sounds. Yeah. So kind of along the same lines, I guess if you and uh, Dr. Burkle had a blank check, you could have <laughs> any, any amount of money in the world. Mm-hmm. What would you do with that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is thought. an Iraflato question from Science Friday. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, man, a blank check. Uh, I think outside of my research, a lot needs to be done on preserving pollinator habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, we're losing a lot of native and wild bee species to land use change to, especially in the Midwest to convert it to corn or wheat fields. And I think being able to preserve some lands and, you know, conserve some habitat would be awesome. Um, a lot needs to be done on that front in terms of my own research. Um, I don't know. I think after I get the results from this year, I can have a better answer. <laughs> okay, for that. We'll, we'll, we might have another podcast yeah. Uh, interview. Yeah, and I just saw this came across on again some science social media about this study that was looking at bug splatters on uh, cars on roadways, and they have noticed through the years that the amount of bug splatters on car windshields has declined through time. And I don't want to put a feather in my cap, but I. I kind of made this observation a few years ago. I'm like, man, I don't think there's as many insects out there because I don't have to, my windshield doesn't get as mucked up when I'm driving around. And so um, this uh, insect apocalypse is really disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's habitat, but I also have a lot of concerns about all the chemicals that we're using. Yeah. 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 And that we maybe haven't studied them enough to know what their, uh, large scale effects are. So totally. Um, so we're getting to the end here and we like to ask a couple, I guess, more softball questions for you. What's your favorite animal? Um, this is always a struggle for me. I get it a lot, you know, and icebreakers and that kind of thing. I am always switching because I feel like there's not one animal that has every trait that I find super interesting. Um, I currently really like cuttlefish, but I really like (laughs) their kind of side long fins. And I think they're really unique. And I uh, saw them, I saw different species of them in an aquarium in uh, SF and at Monterey Bay Aquarium. And I thought they were so neat and so different. Um, But I don't know. I feel like I have to have a Mountain West favorite animal as well. Yeah. If you had to pick one of those, what would it be? Um, I recently uh, was driving and saw a couple of fox kits. Mm-hmm. I think kits is the word for the pups. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And I especially like them because they're so playful yeah. and I get a lot of joy out of animals that 
kind of have that spirit, kind yeah. of like sea lions. Yeah. If you've ever swam with them, they're surfing the waves. Yeah, and that's nice. I think that yeah. kind of spirit is really nice. That's cool. Yeah. Um, well, Jessica, this has been a wonderful visit, and thank you for sharing your life uh, with us and taking the time to chat with me today. I wish you the best in your studies at Montana State University and your research on arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Did I say that right? Yeah, the, you did. Okay, yeah. good job. <laughs> Uh, I'm patting myself on the back. <laughs> if you enjoy the podcast, we uh, would like to hear from you and please share a review or provide a comment at todaysvoices at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science and please spread the word of this podcast. <laughs>